Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dara Lind, and today I am joined by a single and singular guest, Vox Senior Correspondent Ian Milheiser. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. Good to have you. And of course, whenever Ian is here, you should expect a conversation about the Supreme Court. So I think it's fair to say that the latest Supreme Court term was, how do we put this, unprecedented? Yeah, I mean, holy fucking <laughs> shit is the uh, term of art, I fair think, for what enough. just happened. This was, of course, the first term with the 6-3 conservative majority consolidated over the course of the Trump administration, and that divide was extremely evident in the decisions the court handed down. Probably the most anticipated decision, one that advocates knew was coming and one we've discussed on this podcast before, was the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But the court also issued major decisions in other cases about guns, religion, the power of federal agencies to fight climate change, or simply you know, carry out their regulatory agendas more broadly. And while Congress has been in political gridlock, the court has been taking what one might charitably call a fresh eye towards settled legal doctrine, yes. making it almost impossible to ignore the increasing, let's say, political involvement, if not interference, of the current court. The court has a new power that we haven't seen before, and with a conservative majority, it can and will continue to take on major cases that will fundamentally reshape American life. So... Ian, I want to start by kind of reorienting. Obviously, the decision in the Dobbs case overturning Roe v. Wade has gotten so much of the attention that I think it, people might already have forgotten or not necessarily been aware of the momentous, like the rest of the extremely momentous <laughs> docket that the court handed down in its last couple of weeks. So what kind of sticks out to you as we pull out, you know, the most important decisions and themes that have emerged over this new conservative court. Yeah. So there's a number of big themes that emerge. I mean, one is like in law school, you'll hear the phrase passive virtues a lot. There's a lot of legal doctrine and legal traditions wrapped up in the idea that judges should be reluctant to wield power. When they can decide a case narrowly, they should decide a case narrowly. And those passive virtues are gone. On this court. I mean, that was what divided Chief Justice Roberts from the other five Republicans in the Dobbs case is Roberts's opinion basically said, look, we took this case to answer a particular question, whether a 15-week ban is constitutional or not. We should have resolved that question, not should Roe v. Wade be overruled, not can states ban abortion outright. We should decide cases narrowly, passive virtues. And so that whole sense Sensibility is just not there anymore. What I have in my notes as a second big theme is just a question. Can we trust these guys? There are a number of cases where the court, you know, didn't just hand down decisions that I 
disagree with. But they really seem to be playing fast and loose with the law and in some cases with the facts. So Dobbs, I think, was the second most alarming abortion case that was handed down this term. The most alarming case was a case called Whole Women's Health v. Jackson. This was the SB8 case. And Texas had come up with – I can go into more details later – but this very elaborate scheme that allowed them to – before Roe v. Wade was overruled, ban abortions after six weeks. It was enforced solely through lawsuits brought by private bounty hunters. And what the Supreme Court essentially said is so long as you use private bounty hunters exclusively to enforce your laws, you can ignore – any constitutional right you want. Like if, if, you, if you take the opinion in Whole Women's Health v. Jackson seriously, a state could say that private bounty hunters can sue any black child who attends a majority white school. They can sue anyone who purchases a gun. They can sue anyone who criticizes the state governor. You know, Pick whatever constitutional right you care most about. This decision is potentially a threat to all of them, all of them. You know, there are a few other cases like that. You know, the the one that stands out to me the most is a case called Kennedy, which was a case involving a coach who, first of all, was like initially was going to the 50-yard line after games. He was a public school, high school coach, was holding these big meetings with all the players surrounding him where he would give, quote, unquote, motivational speeches that involved prayers. After the school district told him to knock that off, he did a big media tour about, you know, where he talked about how God is compelling him to go to the 50-yard line to give these prayers. And then he went and gave another prayer at the 50-yard line. There are pictures of him surrounded by people, players, members of the press, all sorts of people surrounding him while he did this. And the court's opinion described this as a private and, you know, personal prayer. And they did this, I will note, after Sotomayor dropped several pictures in her opinion of like these very public prayers that this coach was giving. So again, like not only did the court hand down this decision where they said that potentially any constitutional right is in danger, they appear apparently are not moved by photographic evidence of what the facts of particular cases are. I don't want to talk forever. What I'm worried about is just – The court seems to want to reach certain results and it doesn't seem to care how it gets there. I said that there were a few other themes. I'll just tease out one more. And the last theme is that I think they want to be in charge of everything. And we saw that this term primarily in cases involving the administrative state. There was a big case involving the EPA and what its powers are to fight climate change. There were two big cases involving vaccination mandates and when the government can have a vaccine mandate and when it cannot. The answer to that question turns out to be if five justices like a particular vaccination mandate, then the government can have it. And if they don't like it, then they can't. And it's really hard to find a much more principled rule in these cases. You know, the the justices essentially place themselves at the head of the executive branch, saying that they have a veto power over the executive branch's policymaking decisions. So big term, lots of power in the Supreme Court right now and not a lot of constraints on how the court is is wielding it. I think it's very easy to kind of jump to the conclusion and like – not wrong in the final analysis to say that what we saw in the last month of the Supreme Court term was a commitment to reaching conservative policy results, you know, over any particular commitment to jurisprudence. But it's not that there isn't a jurisprudence that's emerging, right? Especially when we talk about 
the Dobbs case, the religion case, some of the gun cases as well, there's an effort to reorient Supreme Court precedent toward this idea of, you know, settled traditional rights in American life and kind of a more muscular form of originalism, perhaps. And it's worth talking about this some because the role of precedent traditionally is that you should be able to predict, you know, the the idea of the rule of law is as much as anything, part of it is that no one is above the law, but part of it is for a well-ordered society, you need to be able to predict whether something is going to be deemed legal or not. You you know, you can't find yourself in a situation where you don't know whether your door is going to get busted down because, right. you know, the, the powers that be have decided that something that was legal is now not. And that's been an important role that precedent has served. It's something that is explicitly considered in litigation when you're talking about reliance interests, which is essentially, you know, is it important that people have been acting on the assumption that this is the law? Like, should we maybe not change the law? Because that assumption was, you know, has has motivated so many people for so long. And so I was hoping you could kind of talk through what does this kind of neo-originalism look like that we're now seeing from this court? Where are they finding the important precedents, texts, what are they relying on so that we can better understand how the Supreme Court is likely to continue to reshape things going forward? The conservative legal movement, I mean, if if you attend Federalist Society events and I try to cover their conference every year, you – you they have their own sense of what the legal anti-canon is, like, you know, the cases that they view as illegitimate and want to strike down. And, you know, this term – some of it was a box checking exercise, you know, checking off cases that have been on the Federalist Society anti-canon for many years. Obviously, Roe is at the top of the list. They overruled that. There's a big case called Lemon v. Kurtzman, which like Scalia many years ago compared to a horror show ghoul that keeps waking up and like reanimating itself even though the protagonists of the movie think that they have killed it over and over again. And so, you know, Gorsuch wrote an opinion. This was the Kennedy case I, I mentioned involving the, the the praying coach. Lemon v. Kurtzman was the case involving what happens in church-state separation cases and Gorsuch wrote an opinion that at least attempts to kill this zombie once and for all. There are at least two other precedents that they nuked, which I was surprised to see them nuke because like they, they aren't major precedents that weren't on the Federalist Society docket, but they are significant ones dealing with what happens when you continuously receive ineffective assistance of counsel in a criminal trial? These were specifically dealing with what happens if you receive ineffective assistance of counsel, not just at your trial, but then at the subsequent proceedings whose purpose is to figure out whether or not you received ineffective assistance the first time around. So if you have two train wrecks of a lawyer twice in a row, what's supposed to happen? And what the Supreme Court essentially said this term is not much. The federal courts can't intervene. And one consequence of that is, you know, this is the Barry Jones case, who is a man who was convicted of a murder that he almost certainly did not commit and will now likely be executed despite the fact that he is almost certainly innocent of the crime he was convicted of. So you have 
that theme going on where there's just like a box checking like we don't like these precedents. Let's get rid of them. But there's also a methodological mm-hmm. you know, thing that is emerging. You, know, you saw this in the abortion case. You saw this in the big guns case. You saw it in the Kennedy case, one of the two big religion cases this term where they're saying the way that – you know, and the way they put it in the abortion case was history and tradition. You know, And what they mean by history and tradition is let's look at what happened in the founding and let's look at treatises by Sir Matthew Hale who was this English jurist from like the 17th century. You know, let's look at really old sources to try to Mm -hmm. figure out what the law should be. What worries me about this development is I think it's exposing that originalism, you know, the the idea that you can look to these historical sources to derive the law is less a constraining force on judges and more just a rhetorical technique. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Bruin, the big guns case that expanded the scope of the Second Amendment that was handed down, what happened in that case is there's you know Justice Thomas's majority opinion, which was joined by all the Republicans, spends a just nauseating amount of time. It's like 30 or 40 pages reviewing all of these historical gun laws, going back to the statue of Northampton, which I think is something from like 1324 or, or that long ago, you know, around 1324 that, that that law was passed. And what he concludes is that the Second Amendment should be construed the way that the Republican Party would like the Second Amendment to be construed. And then Justice Breyer writes a dissent and he goes through all of the same historical sources. He spends about 20 pages on that. The Democratic justices join Justice Breyer's opinion and they conclude that the Second Amendment should be read in the way that the Democratic Party prefers. So like they are making lawyers do more historical research and they are doing more historical research themselves. But it's not clear to me that originalism is doing any work in the sense that it is like informing the actual outcomes that they reach. We'll talk a little bit more about originalism and disputes within that tradition uh, later in the episode. But I wanted to get a sense of your read of, you know, obviously we talk about a 6-3 conservative majority, but even though we haven't seen a whole lot of the unanimous cases that the Roberts Court has really made its stock and trade over the first, you know, 15 years or so of of Chief Justice John Roberts' tenure, we didn't see a ton of pure six conservative justices in the majority all signing on to the same opinion and the three liberal justices in the, you know, like signing on to the same dissent. There were various concurring opinions. Sometimes there were defections by one or another of the conservative bloc. What do you think the kind of nature of that six justice block is? And is there any daylight between, say, a Clarence Thomas and a Brett Kavanaugh? Yeah. So, I mean, there is significant daylight there. I mean, a lot of things have changed. I mean, one is just that when you had a five to four court, if each one of the five conservative justices had a 10 percent chance of voting with the liberals in any given case, that's going to add up to a lot of decisions where if the liberals stick together, you wind up with a five, four liberal decision because like that's just how math works. Right. So like it, and now the liberals have to pick off two justices. So that, that's going to happen much less often. Roberts, you know, during the brief period where he was the center vote in the court, 
Roberts, I think, is a true Burkean conservative. Like he wants conservative policy outcomes. But, you know, like a friend of mine who used to work in the Supreme Court building described him as the most professional person he has ever met in his life. Like Roberts believes that there is a way that things are done. And so like – It goes back to what I was discussing with the Dobbs case where no, like we granted this case to resolve this question. That is the way that the rules work. We should follow the rules. I want to move the law to the right, but it must be done in an orderly way. And the other five Republicans, I don't think, care about that sort of procedural conservatism. You know, they want to reach substantive policy results. They don't care as much about how they get there and they want to get there fast. That said, at the end of the last term, there were a lot of, I think, overblown pieces written talking about a 3-3-3 court where you had Thomas Alito and Gorsuch who are coup-like or the most conservative justices. They want it all and they want it now, 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 now. You've got the three liberal justices and then you had Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett who were kind of in the middle. And I think it is true that like in the narrow sense that like – Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett typically stake out positions that are somewhere in between those two blocks. But like first of all, they tend to stake positions that are very much closer to the Thomas block than to the liberal block. And when I think they do part ways from the most conservative justices, it's often because either the Republican Party doesn't want the outcome that like the most conservative justices are calling for. You know, the biggest example of this last term was the big Obamacare case that was before the court. And like this came up at Justice Barrett's hearing, and like you had Republican senators being like, No, we think this is ridiculous. What are you doing? You know, the Wall Street Journal was publishing editorials saying, Yeah, yeah, th- this is this lawsuit is garbage. The National Review was ripping this lawsuit apart. So like as it turns out, when you have all these Republican elites saying don't do this thing, you know, in that case, one of being seven to two, you got Alito and Gorsuch saying that the Affordable Care Act should be struck down. But the other justices weren't going to stake out a position to the right of where the Republican Party is. You know, there's also cases where just the thing that conservative litigants are asking for is completely unworkable and like just I think departs from say Brett Kavanaugh's sense of how the government is supposed to work. There was a case this term was called Navy SEALs because many of the plaintiffs were named Navy SEALs where a lower court judge, two lower court judges actually essentially seized command of the US military. What, what, what they did was there were these service members who refused to be vaccinated. They claimed they had a religious justification for that. These two trial judges said like not only do they have a right not to be vaccinated, but the military can't impose any consequences on them. And what that meant is that, you know, there were Navy SEALs and like Navy SEALs, like they often work in teams of four where if one person gets sick, the mission is screwed. And so it's like the military just had a rule that you couldn't be deployed if you weren't vaccinated because you can lose entire missions if someone gets COVID-19 or you could have to evacuate them from like a hostile country which could endanger dozens of other service members. So the military said, no, we, we these it's not safe to deploy this person. And the judge said you have to deploy them anyway. The Supreme Court stepped in and said no. The military gets to decide who gets deployed, not a judge. And that that was a six to three decision. So in those extreme cases, you do see Roberts, Kavanaugh, Barrett tending to say, yeah, that's a little too far. But like 
Donald Trump did not campaign on putting judges in charge of the U.S. military. Like it's not like that has been a big, you know, item of of dispute between the two major political parties. And on the things that are major items of dispute between the the two major political parties, you know, Kavanaugh will tend to vote with Alito much more often than he won't. Let's take a break, and then I want to. Get back to something that you mentioned in passing and use that to talk about what we can expect from this court going forward. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. And we're back. I'm here with Ian Milheiser wrapping up a very momentous term at the Supreme Court. You said in passing, Ian, that Chief Justice John Roberts is an extremely professional person. You obviously we've gotten that sense from his public statements and his stewardship of the court over the last you know 15 years that he cares a great deal about maintaining the dignity and gravity of the court. And I think he's a little more vocal about it, but he's representing what has been kind of the unstated assumption by Supreme Court justices for a very long time, that it's extremely important that the justices be collegial with each other, that it's extremely important that they find unanimity on cases when they can, that there is, you know, that they hold themselves above politics because it's important for the public to see that they're being ruled by something other than political considerations, right? right? And, you know, 
something that I think I've said on the podcast before that I definitely, you know, say when joking around with other with folks who like understand legal philosophy is that legal realism, which is the philosophy that judges are in fact political actors and are just making the decisions that they want to see policy-wise in the world and kind of using everything else as a justification for that, that, that legal realism is probably true, but that it's still an important constraint on judges to not believe that legal right. realism is true, right? To not see themselves as just a super legislature. It seems that that is the mask has come off, the noble lie has has kind of been debunked, whatever metaphor you want to use, that the understanding that it's important for the court to distance itself from politics whenever possible has been eclipsed somewhat. And I'm wondering what that means for the court as, as a workplace, as an institution. You mentioned the religion case where Justice Sotomayor, in writing the dissent, was moved to literally include photos, a thing you do not usually see in printed Supreme Court opinions. You know, there was a lot of I dissent instead of I respectfully dissent. It does appear that there is, you know, less need when you have a 6-3 majority. There's probably less need to care at all about what the minority says. And, you know, how important do we think this is, given that they have a 6-3 majority? Do we think that this is going to actually have a meaningful effect on jurisprudence going forward? Or is all we're seeing the reputational decline of the court? So I think it's important to bear in mind that, like, the noble lie is a very self-serving lie for the judiciary. This isn't a new observation. Like, Alexander Hamilton wrote about how the judiciary has neither force nor will but judgment. It depends on the executive branch to enforce its decisions. You know, the judiciary is simultaneously the most powerful and the least powerful branch. And, you know, what I mean by that is part of the reason the Supreme Court has been able to amass so much power is because our Congress is completely dis functional. It can't pass any laws. It has supermajority requirements that prevents it from passing any law, any laws through the Senate. All that the Supreme Court needs is five votes and it can do whatever the heck it wants. So it is tremendously dynamic in that regard. But then once it hands down a decision, courts generally rely on voluntary compliance. You know, you know the, the mechanism, if you are ordered to do something by a federal court and you do not do it, is that the U.S. Marshals are sent after you to enforce that decision. And U.S. Marshals are part of the executive branch of government. They're, they are under the command and control of Joe Biden, not of Chief Justice Roberts or, any, or you know, or, or, or anyone in the judiciary. You know, in theory, I mean, we saw this in the Civil Rights era. If someone really resists the decision. The president can send the military to enforce the decision. But again, the military, you know, Joe Biden is the commander in chief of the military, not John Roberts. And so there is a danger that if the public feels that the court has just become a completely partisan institution that like isn't exercising judgment, is just wielding power, that, you know, not just the public, but like a state governor, for example, could choose not to follow a Supreme Court decision. And then the question of whether it will be enforced depends on whether the president is willing to enforce it. It depends upon like whether the president has the resources. There's only but so many U.S. Marshals out there. And if lots of people are defying court decisions, they, 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 they can't get to everyone. So this has been, you know, this noble lie that the courts are engaged in, you know, something other than pure politics isn't just something that preserves the public sense that like everything is hunky-dory. It preserves the judiciary's ability to actually do its job. And I don't know what's going to happen because like 
it is steeping down into the public that this court is doing something. You know, Gallup had a poll showing only 25 percent of the country has confidence in the Supreme Court. Poll after poll after poll has shown the court's approval rating at historic lows. I think Fox News just had a poll showing 47 percent of the country supports court packing, which, you know, essentially involves nuking the legitimacy of the judiciary in order to prevent it, you know, destroying the village to save it. Like, you know, just getting rid of the judiciary's ability to be taken seriously so that they no longer can screw around with the things they're screwing around with right now. 47 percent of the country wants that to happen. So I don't know how this plays out. I mean, I don't know if we start to see massive resistance campaigns on the scale of what you saw with Southern resistance to the Brown v. Board of Education decision. I think that, you know, Biden thus far has resisted the pressure, but like he could find himself under considerably more pressure not to enforce decisions. I mean, that that wouldn't be an option for the abortion decision because, you know, there isn't a decision to not enforce. What the court said in Dobbs is that the judiciary will no longer protect abortion. But like if the court had, say, struck down Obamacare in the case that I mentioned before, Biden would have tremendous power to, you know, he could order the, the Department of Health and Human Services. You're going to continue to pay out those subsidies no matter what the Supreme Court says. And the Supreme Court couldn't do anything about that. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I do think that you know, if I were the justices and I was looking at these poll numbers, and if I had read my Alexander Hamilton, I would be very worried that you know there could be a breaking point. I do think that when we're talking about this kind of thing, it's important to kind of assess like how likely do you think the kind of open defiance scenario is to emerge in the next like few years? I mean, it, it depends on who we are talking about being defiant. So like I think that the the situation where Joe Biden just like openly and notoriously refuses to uh, you know enforce a Supreme Court decision is fairly low. You know, I could see like sort of malingering compliance by state governments becoming a norm. I could see lower court judges the way that the process works, if you you know want to enforce a right that the Supreme Court has said that you had, isn't that you just go to the Supreme Court and say, hey, give me my right. You go to any of the like 600 and something district judges in the country and file a new lawsuit and ask them to enforce it. And you could see you know Democratic appointed district judges saying – you know what? I'm not going to be complicit in this. You know, if 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 you want that Supreme Court decision enforced, you're going to have to appeal to them. And you know, lawyers cost money. Litigation takes a lot of time. It's not very efficient. And you know, and and that could diminish. It won't eviscerate the court's decision, but it will make it very, very hard to enforce. You know, the blueprint for this kind of thing, and you know, I hate to draw this comparison because obviously the political hats were being worn by different heads in this circumstance, but is the massive resistance campaign, which was very successful. You know, in the 10 years after Brown in 1964, before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed and, you know, helped to cure this problem, only one in 85 black children in the South attended a desegregated school. So, you know, 10 years after Brown, that decision had done virtually nothing. Resistance to the judiciary when it is concentrated and when it is, you know, determined is very, very effective. 
And I don't want to counsel Joe Biden to follow the example of George Wallace. But I do think that, you know, these political tactics are the sorts of political tactics that can be used by any political faction. You know, they, they, they are morally neutral tactics. And if they are deployed against this court, the court only has but so many cards it can play. I want to keep talking about the lower courts because I, I, you know, want to talk also about the kind of centralizing role the Supreme Court has usually served in kind of reining in some of the more ideologically boundary pushing lower court judges, right? And one of the cases that hasn't gotten a lot of attention from the end of the Supreme Court term that was actually, you know, a win on its face for the Biden administration was the Texas versus Biden case on immigration in which the court you know, essentially overturned a lower court ruling that had prevented the Biden administration from ending the Remain in Mexico program, which we've talked about on the weeds a bunch of times, but which, you know, under the Trump administration and now and at various points under the Biden administration uh, forced migrants seeking asylum to wait in Mexico while their asylum proceedings were happening in the U.S. The argument that the lower court made, siding with Texas and several other state attorneys general, was that every single president since Bill Clinton had been in violation of federal law until Donald Trump created the Remain in Mexico program. And that's why it was illegal for Biden to end it. I mean, I actually have to correct that yes, slightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Under his reasoning, Donald Trump was also in violation the, of federal oh, that's true. law because there were exceptions <laughs> right, to, to, right, right. to Trump's uh, Remain in Mexico policy. That's, that is true. That is yeah. true. That Donald Trump had been, had been the least completely negligent president. Exactly. Uh, and that Biden was returning to that tradition of negligence. And you know, that argument was not something that the conservative majority or that the entire conservative majority could get behind. But what was interesting to me in kind of seeing how this shook out is that not only does this not resolve the kind of ongoing litigation question over that particular program, which has itself been kind of eclipsed by the continued expulsions under Title 42, which don't give people who are subject to them any right to an asylum hearing at all. But there are other cases going through the same Fifth Circuit, usually Texas judges on immigration that have kind of hamstrung the Biden administration even more. You know, we just got a, a ruling recently that said that any efforts from the top to prioritize interior enforcement by telling ICE who they should and shouldn't be going after was, you know, was a dereliction of duty. That's where we're looking to see the decision on DACA coming in a case that's been pending for ages and ages and ages in the near future. So I'm wondering, you know, are we seeing this kind of feeling itself conservative majority? Do we think that they're going to continue to are we going to see more rulings like the Remain in Mexico ruling where they said, look, you know, you're usually on our side, but we got to say, this is a little absurd, dudes. Or are we going to see them kind of passively allowing either through, you know, explicitly siding with the conservative lower court judges or just not taking up the cases, allowing the Fifth Circuit to kind of run itself? Yeah. I think there will always be some case where the Supreme Court draws the line, like no matter how bad the Supreme Court gets. Like, you know, there was a case I think like a year, a year and a half ago called Collins v. Yellen 
where the plaintiffs were asking for a remedy that would have canceled $124 billion worth of transactions and potentially triggered a global depression. And like Justice Alito wrote the opinion saying, no, we're not going to do that. You know, only Gorsuch dissented. Like, so there's always going to be a litigant who asks for too much. And unfortunately, because we have a few crazy ideological judges on the lower courts, there's always going to be a judge who's willing to sign on. You know, so there will always be something. You, you, you know, now like where the line is is going to move more and more to the right. The more Republicans are appointed to the Supreme Court, but there's always going to be something that's over the line. I think the name of the case you were just discussing, Biden v. Texas, is significant because. Like every single term now, and sometimes there are multiple cases like this. I cover a case that is either called Biden v. Texas or United States v. v. Texas. Like sometimes I cover two or three cases that are called United States v. Texas. And the reason why is, first of all, the Texas Solicitor General's office has basically become the Solicitor General of the Republican Party. Like when Republicans don't like a Biden policy, the Texas Solicitor General files the case. The reason why is like you said, there are all these judges. In, I mean, well, there aren't all of these judges in Texas. There may be three or four judges in Texas. I can name them. You know, Reed O'Connor, Drew Tipton, Matthew Ketzmerich, who are extreme right-wing ideological outliers, you know, out of step even with the Supreme Court that we have right now. And their decisions appeal to the Fifth Circuit, which is also extremely conservative. There are some procedural quirks about how federal litigation works in Texas, where like Texas is divided into four federal districts, and those districts are then chopped up into divisions. And in Texas, there are certain rules governing where if you file a case in a particular division, it will be heard by a judge who is from that division. And like there are actual orders saying like – so in Matthew Kitzmerich's division, if you file a court in Matthew Kitzmerich's division, 95 percent of the cases will be heard by Matthew Kitzmerich. And Matthew Kitzmerich is a crank. So Texas knows they can just go to Matthew Katzmerick. They have a 95 percent – you know, and like similar things are true about Drew Tipton's courtroom. So if you want Drew Tipton, you have a, you have a very high chance of getting him. And so they're getting these wild orders from these extreme outlier judges. And in some cases, you know, in the Biden v. Texas case, as you said, the Supreme Court eventually stepped in. But I think the most important thing to understand about this case isn't that Biden eventually won a sort of victory. It's that, you know, Biden went to the Supreme Court almost a year ago, last August, after Katzmerich handed down his decision in that case and was like, hey, you need to stay this thing. Like, last time I checked, Matthew Katzmerich is not Secretary of Homeland Security. And the Supreme Court said, nope. And then they let Ketzmerich's order stay in effect for almost an entire year, for about 10 months. And then when they finally said that Ketzmerich was wrong at the end of June, they said, oh, yeah, we're going to say he was wrong about these things. Like, yeah, every president since Bill Clinton hasn't been violating federal immigration law. But there's a bunch of other lingering legal issues in this case, and we're just going to send them back down to Ketzmerich to resolve them. So, I mean – I can't predict the future, but if I were a betting man, what I think is going to happen is Texas is going to file a motion raising all these issues that the Supreme Court has said are still lingering and Matthew Katzmerich being Matthew Katzmerich will rule in Texas's favor and order Biden to reinstate the Remain in Mexico program and then it could be another year 
before the Supreme Court gets around to smacking him down again. So, you know, even when the Supreme Court is saying, hey, there are still rules, these judges can't do whatever they want, they aren't exactly proceeding with alacrity here. So I wanted to talk a little bit about one kind of other procedural feature of the Supreme Court, which is the shadow docket, which was something that was getting a lot of buzz during the part of this term before all the decisions came down and which does, you know, seem like another tool that is being increasingly used in the service of this increasingly, one might say, activist court. How do we think, you know, in, in a world where the shadow docket might not even be necessary because you have such a firm conservative majority that's willing and able to push things as far as they want. Do you think that we're going to continue to see rule by just these kind of nominally procedural rulings that kind of stand in for having the binding precedent because the Supreme Court is so much more willing than it has been in recent years to stay opinions it disagrees with, to refuse to stay opinions even if it will ultimately side against them, as we saw with the Remain in Mexico case. What role do we think the shadow docket's going to play going right. forward? So real quick, like the way that the Supreme Court normally handles cases, the way that's supposed to handle the overwhelming majority of cases, is, you know, through a process that takes months. Like first the lower courts have to fully consider the case and then after at least one court of appeals or state Supreme Court has ruled on the case, the Supreme Court will look at it. They will give the parties, you know, a lot of time to produce the best possible briefs. They will let anyone who wants to submit an amicus brief submit the brief. They will spend a few months reading through these briefs. They will hold an oral argument and then they may spend two, three, four months writing an opinion. And the reason why they do it in this very careful, judicious way is because they have the last word. And so if they screw something up, like there's no one to check them. Like that is the reason why the court, you know, is supposed to spend a lot of time thinking about these issues because once the court speaks, you know, you're stuck with it. There's, there's There's not much that can be done. The shadow docket began as a process specifically for death penalty appeals. So you had cases where someone is going to be killed on Thursday and if the Supreme Court spends you know, months deciding whether or not it's legal to execute them, the case will be moot because the person will be dead. And so you know, there was an understanding that there needed to be some sort of emergency process where the court could stay these executions in order to prevent the court's own jurisdiction from being frustrated because the cases were being mooted in that way. It was occasionally used for other purposes but only in emergencies. You know, Steve Vladek, a professor down at the University of Texas, has done a tremendous amount of work on the shadow docket. And like one thing that he found is like during the Bush administration, during the Obama administration, I believe he may have gone back to the Clinton administration. He found that like the solicitor general would only ask the Supreme Court to decide a shadow docket case maybe like – you know, less than once a term. Like it was considered an extraordinary act to even make the request. And like part of the reason why is because there was just a norm that the justices don't like these things and you don't want to piss them off. And under Trump, the Solicitor General started filing like two, three, four cases a term seeking relief. You know, one of the reason why the court slow walking the Biden v. Texas case stands out to be so much is many of these shadow docket cases that were decided during the Trump administration were the mirror image of Biden v. Texas. It was a Democratic appointed judge who had, who had blocked a Trump era immigration policy 
And the court treated this as an emergency that needed to be blocked right. I mean like Justice Alito even gave a speech at Notre Dame recently where he said like, well, the reason why we had to step in is because if we didn't, it would be – Trump's term would be almost over by the time we got around to resolving the policy. You know, That bothered them under Trump doesn't seem to bother them that much under Biden. And then the third thing that we've seen happen is that – on a lot of issues that were very high priorities for the conservative legal movement, they started handing actual substantive precedential opinions on the shadow docket. So they completely rewrote the law governing the free exercise clause, you know, your, your right to practice your religion in a bunch of pandemic cases involving like, you know, can a public health agency prevent a, you know, put an occupancy limit on a church, things like that. The law had been no. And they, they, they basically rewrote a bunch of laws governing when a religious objector prevails in this case. They know the, the rule now is yes, a church can do what it wants uh, you know, in the face of such a public health order. Um, and so what this means moving forward, I suspect we'll probably see less precedential setting opinions on the shadow docket moving forward just because like – as this court six to three majority sits for longer and longer, they will hand down more precedential opinions and they will have already changed the law. So there will be less need for them to change the law in a shadow docket case. But like now that this norm that they're going to hear shadow docket cases all the time has been changed, I think – Lawyers are smart. They're going to start asking the court for, for emergency relief all the time. And one of the biggest victims of that decision is going to be the justices themselves. Brett Kavanaugh might have theater tickets that night and doesn't want to deal with the fact that, you know, some lawyer for some whatever corporation thinks that it's now normal to file for emergency stays. And so we didn't like this opinion that the Seventh Circuit handed down. So let's file an emergency stay. And so will a dozen other lawyers that night. Like, you know, a big reason they discouraged lawyers from filing these cases was for their own sanity. Um, and that's no longer going to be true. But – Ultimately, what I think this speaks to is it speaks to the court's impatience. You know, it is willing to not just change the rules, but change the rules in ways that inconvenience the justices themselves in order to make sure that they get to the outcomes they want as quickly as they can. Let's take another break because I think that the white paper that we have for this week really speaks to this question of, of pace and impatience. Yes. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. 
Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. And we're back. So today's white paper is called Originalism and Stare Decisis. The author of this paper might be familiar to many listeners. The paper was written by Amy Coney Barrett uh, when she was a law professor at Notre Dame before being appointed to the Supreme Court. Ian, you suggested this paper, and of course, I jumped on it because if we can finish an episode about the conservative majority on the Supreme Court with one of the the members of said conservative majority laying out a tension that we've been discussing and that is is very live right now, which is the tension between adhering to precedent and restoring what you see as the original public meaning of the Constitution, we should absolutely have that out. So can you kind of talk us through the problem that Barrett is identifying and how she tries to resolve it in this paper? One thing that I really like about this paper is that it provides a very concise definition of how conservative academics who identify as originalists have defined the word originalism. And I'll just quote from Barrett here. So this is her definition. Originalism maintains both that the constitutional text means what it did at the time it was ratified and that the original public meaning is authoritative. So there's a lot of things going on here, but like I think the – One of the most important things that comes out of that definition is the idea that the Constitution's meaning is fixed. You know, no matter what happens, unless there's an amendment, it cannot change. And as Barrett points out, this creates a real tension for originalist judges because there are a lot of precedents out there that may not comport with what Amy Coney Barrett or, you know, whatever originalists sit on the Supreme Court think the original public meaning of the Constitution is. And if the Constitution's meaning is fixed and it cannot change under any circumstances other than a constitutional amendment, then what do you do with those precedents? You know, if you allow them to stand, you're changing the meaning of the Constitution without a constitutional amendment. She gives a few examples of the sort of precedents that like would potentially be threatened by a strictly originalist judge and they are big precedents. You know, Brown v. Board of Education is on the list. You know, the precedents allowing paper money, meaning like money not backed by the gold standard or something. Like those she identifies as like the sorts of opinions could be vulnerable to originalist attack. The opinion upholding social security <laughs> is on her list of potentially vulnerable decisions. So, like, everyone loses their old age pension. And to be clear, every time she mentions one of these opinions, she goes out of her way to say, I'm not saying it was necessarily 
you know, wrong. Right. I'm not saying that an originalist would say it was wrong. I'm just saying that this would be the kind of, like, these would be the fights we'd be having. Exactly. Like, she's saying there are strong originalist arguments that Brown was wrongly decided, that Social Security is unconstitutional, that paper money is unconstitutional. Not, she's not going all the way there and saying that they are uh, unconstitutional. And so the question then is, what is an originalist judge supposed to do? If a litigant shows up and says, hey, like, let's declare the dollar unconstitutional. And the primary solution she comes up with, I mean, in some cases she says that, like, a judge can maybe, like, uphold the statute that was upheld in the old decision but not apply the legal rule. And, like, maybe that's a solution, but I don't know how that gets – how that solves the problem of paper money. The main solution she she suggests is basically that the Supreme Court should avoid the question. You know, the way that she puts it in the papers, the court's discretionary jurisdiction generally permits it to choose what questions it wants to answer. And if so, so if someone shows up with the lawsuit saying, "I think you should declare social security unconstitutional," what the Supreme Court should do is just not hear the case. It's just very clear that she was writing this as a law professor and not as a justice who has actually had to deal with this problem before because like we were just talking about the problem of the Fifth Circuit. We were just talking about the problem of like Drew Tipton and Matthew Kent's Merrick. Like she is assuming that the rules work. The way that the rules are supposed to work is that the Supreme Court declares Social Security constitutional and then every judge in the country has to obey that decision. But like – they aren't always obeyed. I mean that you know you have more judges pushing the limits now than there were in the past. But this isn't a new phenomenon. I mean the, the the seminal Second Amendment opinion from Justice Scalia in 2008 is D.C. v. Heller, which was the first opinion in 2008 that the Supreme Court had ever handed down saying there's an individual right to own a firearm protected by the Second Amendment. Before that, the court had said that – no, this is just about militias. Mm-hmm. And how that case came about is that it was heard by an unusually conservative panel of the D.C. Circuit and two Republican-appointed judges on the D.C. Circuit said, let's fuck around and find out. And you know they decided to just act like the court hadn't said that the individual rights theory was wrong. And they wrote the opinion that they wanted, not the opinion that the court's precedent suggests. And, and then the Supreme Court rewarded them by going, yeah, we're going to change the law. So, you know, my point is that if your only mechanism to defend against a court declaring paper money unconstitutional is you trust that no lower court is going to go there, well, they're going there. They're going there on a, on a lot of issues. And ultimately, Barrett is either going to have to come up with another way to defend against litigants who want Brown v. Board of Education overruled. Or you know, she's going to have to take seriously arguments calling for Brown v. Board of Education to be overruled. Yeah, the other thing about you know Barrett's argument that essentially the the tissue of practice in right. the Supreme Court uh, prevents it from from wreaking utter havoc um, is, of course, you know, as as we've been discussing that that tissue is changing. It isn't always being respected by the current conservative majority. I was absolutely struck by her argument that not only does the Supreme Court have discretion in which cases it takes, but it's bound conversely by the questions being presented in the case. And it doesn't get to just say, oh, let's overturn this precedent because we don't like it and we can. They have to wait for something. Yeah. Roe v. Wade would like to have words with her about this. Exactly. Exactly. Like we literally were just discussing earlier in this episode that they could have followed 
Professor Verrett's suggestions, but Justice Verrett and her colleagues chose not to. Right. But the the other thing about this is she's kind of making a no reasonable person would, which is of course like it's a it's a turning on its head a very familiar concept yeah. in common law. No reasonable well, person, person would put Drew Tipton on a court, right. but guess what? <laughs> like, no reasonable person would would try to relitigate the Social Security Act. No reasonable person would try to relitigate paper money. And the reason that I find that really striking is we are seeing now, as this as the dust settles on this term, a new willingness to challenge, in particular, the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell, right? You have Senator Ted Cruz coming out and saying he thinks it was wrongly decided. Right. There wasn't a huge hue and cry about Obergefell when it dropped. The assumption, in fact, was that it was going to be a settled question and that conservatives were going to abandon what it was assumed they felt had been an, had become an embarrassing political fight for them. And if if you continue to move the court further right, if that then calls into question a bunch of other settled precedents like, oh, well, maybe if they're willing to say Roe v. Wade was unconstitutional, maybe I shouldn't assume that Obergefell right. is settled law, right? This I also think of this in the immigration context because I think a lot of people forget that when DACA was first announced 10 years ago, there wasn't a legal challenge really at all. There right. was a, a nominal legal challenge that was pretty quickly thrown out. And it wasn't until the Obama administration attempted to expand it and create a much larger sister program that litigation started that would eventually bend back and challenge the existence of DACA itself. But they needed that original rule, you know, they needed that kind of that ruling in the further case first before they could get to the issue that was closer to a political consensus. So as Barrett now is going to continue to serve on the court for a certain amount of time, like the thing that it strikes me she would encounter is that the things she sees now as being beyond the pale are going to get called into more and more question because of rulings that she and her colleagues are perpetuating, yes. right? They're going to get closer and closer to a world where, you know, these Supreme Court precedents are outliers or are at least like to the left of other Supreme Court right. jurisprudence. And there's going to be more focus on them. So do you see anything in this argument that indicates like, what a justice is to do in that situation where they're on the record early in their term saying that things are, you know, like not being willing to address questions and then those questions get harder and harder to ignore as the years go on? I mean, one thing that I think is notable about this paper, I mean, first of all, she's writing it based on her experience as someone who clerked for Justice Scalia for a single year. Like, I mean, it, it's just one thing that sort of comes out of the paper is she's not so much like coming up with like a grand comprehensive after like interviewing 17 people have served on the Supreme Court and getting like she is describing how Justice Scalia dealt with these issues. And like first of all, Scalia compared to like Gorsuch or Thomas is a moderate originalist. So like he just wanted to push less hard than, than they wanted to push. But also like you know, it is more a description of how Justice Scalia handled the issues that came before him then it is a description of like how a justice is who sit on this court, which is, you know, arguably to the right of Justice Scalia, should deal with a lot of these issues. And like the other problem is that so when the court hands down a decision, it doesn't just say like the Social Security Act is constitutional or unconstitutional. It often articulates the method that judges should use when interpreting the Constitution. And we've seen this term a lot of these sort of meta decisions that don't just say like, 
hey, we think that Lemon v. Kurtzman was wrongly decided. Like this was, you know, the religion case that we were talking before, the Kennedy case. You know, that didn't just say, you know, it it overruled Lemon. It gave a very vague description of why it thought Lemon was wrongly decided. But what it said is that when judges are interpreting a passage of the Constitution, they should look to historical practices and understandings. You know, and you know, the court said similar things in the guns case and the abortion case. And so if I am a lower court judge who is acting in good faith, like you know, who is who is not a crank, who's just trying to obey the commands that have been handed down to me to my judicial superiors, what I see the Supreme Court doing is handing them down a lot of these meta-decisional cases that aren't just saying like, hey, this individual precedent that reached or this result in 1973, that result was wrong. They are saying the entire methodology mm-hmm. that we have historically used to decide constitutional questions is wrong and there should be a grand shift to this different methodology. And in fact, the grand shift is a shift to a more originalist methodology, the very methodology that Barrett identifies in her paper as potentially endangering things like social security mm-hmm. or paper money. And so, you know, I, I, again, like if I am a lower court judge reading this white paper by Amy Coney Barrett, what I see is a Supreme Court justice telling me as the court is moving in a more originalist jurisdiction that Social Security might be sus. <laughs> like, you know, you, you don't have to be acting in bad faith to think that maybe the court is telling you to reconsider the constitutionality of Social Security. Right. Or, I mean, or at very least, you know, you might as well fuck around and find out. Because, exactly. Yeah. But I, I definitely I think that it would be, I think, a little bit foolish to assume that we're not going to continue to see more of this kind of, you know, the absence of kind of the center of gravity role that the court has provided and, and you know, more and more lower court decisions that may conflict with each other, that may conflict with settled precedent. And it's just it's going to be returning to the idea of the reliance interest, like what this means for how government officials act on a day-to-day basis is really, really relevant here because it strongly suggests that there is going to be rapid turns in whether or not a particular policy is legal or should be pursued at all that are for government, which is used to moving very, very slowly, not to mention, you know, like 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 the judiciary is not the only branch of government that's used to right. proceeding at a glacial pace. It's going to be very interesting to see what this does for governing fast and slow, if yeah. you will. And I'll say one other thing, which is I think it's as it is making the rest of the government move slow. I think that the court's current approach to originalism is allowing the court to move very quickly. You, you know, if you go back and read Scalia's great essays and speeches from the 1980s, like explaining why he's originalist and why originalism is good, he describes it as a way of constraining judges. He describes it as a way of saying, look, like there's one meaning. It is fixed. This is the method to determine it. And the reason why it is good to read the constitution this way is because we don't want want judges setting policy in a democracy. We, you know, we want them to reach the one determined outcome and, and that's it. One critique of originalism is that doesn't work, that like the, there isn't in fact one determinate meaning of the constitution. But even if you concede that point, like what Barrett is saying in her essay is essentially there will be some cases where we use originalism and there's some cases where we use stare decisis. And it is essentially a judgment call. Like, I mean, why does Barrett not want to strike down Social Security? Because she thinks it would be bad. 
Why does she not want to overrule Brown v. Board of Edu- Education? Because she thinks it would be bad. And if because I think it would be bad, like the whole problem that Scalia was trying to solve with originalism is that judges shouldn't be making a decision because they think the other outcome is bad. You know, they, they should be doing something more than engaging in policy discretion. And what I think that Barrett is inadvertently conceding in her paper is that originalism doesn't do the work that we were told it was supposed to do. It doesn't, in fact, constrain judges. It just changes the rhetoric that they use when they are making these sorts of policy judgments. So with that, I think that we can lay this Supreme Court term to rest, at least until it, in, until the next term begins in October. Yeah, good riddance um, to this term. <laughs> thank you to Ian Milheiser for joining us today. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dara Lind. We will be back in your feeds next week. We are revving up the weeds time machine again. So get excited for another trip to the 20th century. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.